All right. We're just doing stanza number one today? It's up to you. Well, I can only sing that one, so if you want me to well, there we go. Okay. So this week's obviously all about Abraham, so we're going to start off by not talking about Abraham. Let's talk about, well, sort of, kind of, kind of about Abraham, kind of about Lot. So, um, Lot. So, Mike, I have a question for you. If you get into an argument with someone, uh, who, who's, if that, if, if, hypothetically, hypothetically, if you were to get into an argument with someone, who's, who's responsible for ending the argument? Who's responsible for making peace? Is it you or the other person? Besides Who should it be? <laughs> you, right? Um, and when Lot's herdsmen and Abraham's herdsmen got into a, into a quarrel, Abraham's the one who takes the initiative, Avram, to end the argument. He he shows his righteousness. Um, What's interesting about this whole story, though, is Avram and Lot, Lot are, uh, they're, they're not equals. Avram is, is the older one. He's the uncle. He's the one who's taking the lead. Um, but he's the one who's humble enough to come to Lot and say, we need to make peace. And this is like when, in Paul when he says that um, as much as it, it pertains to you, be at peace with all men. From Romans chapter 12. Stealing we from Tuesday just nights. Recently <laughs> read, so I can say that. You know, we have, I'm not That's preempting right, not anything. Jumping ahead. Um, uh, and so Avram really emphasizes that. Lot, though, I think is an interesting character because in the in the book of uh, in the book of Genesis, um, there's a really interesting Hebrew word involving Lot. We do a quick Hebrew lesson. Um, who here knows what the uh, word et means in Hebrew? All of you do. This is fantastic. Grammar. It means nothing. It's a grammar term um, that's particularly used uh, for direct objects. So. Um, uh, Rabbi Foreman has a great little lesson on this. It comes because it shows up in the beginning of Genesis in his book, The Beast That Crouches the Door. I think the example that he gave is it's like in English you would say, I hit the ball. In Hebrew, you would say, I hit et the ball. Because the et shows that it's like a direct object, I think. But what's weird about et is et actually has two meanings. It can have no meaning, like we just talked about. Or on occasion, and in special circumstances, it can also refer to with. Um, but it's with, not like um, I went on a run with my brother, but more like my father-in-law built this part of the house with his bare hand. Now, his hand was not working separately from him while his feet were doing the work. He was using his hand 
to build the house. And so et, with, when it's involving with, my foreman points this out, is more the idea of um, along with in a subordinate relationship. One person is in charge and one person is sort of like being used in this activity. So if you look in your chumash um, and look at the Hebrew, you will see that et, which is a rare form of the word with, it's not used all that often, is used multiple times when it says that Lot or Avram were with, Lot was with Avram. He went with Avram. Or Avram had him, had, went with Lot. You see the word with used multiple times. What Rabbi Foreman says, and this is really important, is that the word et can have, um, the subordination is not always clear. Who's really in charge by the word et? What's interesting is that in the, in the grammar, the, um, the structure of it changes with Lot. In the first passage in chapter 12, which we start off with in Lekotha, Lot is with Avram. In the second one, Avram uh, is with Lot. It's kind of like the grammar, how it changes. It flips who's doing what, who's the one on the other end of the, of the word. So what's cool about that, I think, this is my opinion, Lot's a righteous dude, so I'm not as ascribing bad motives to him, but I think he makes a mistake that those of us in our faith make regularly. And his mistake is that he loses sight of who is the hierarchy in the relationship with Avram. Avram is the recipient of God's blessings. He's the recipient of the covenant. He should always be first. But when they get into a fight, like we were talking about earlier, Avram tells Lot, look, I don't, wanna, I don't want any trouble with us. You go pick your place. Realistically, Lot should have said, oh, no, absolutely not. I will do whatever it takes to stay with you because God has blessed you. I want to be with you. Instead, he finds the best plot of land and leaves. And I think that's exactly what too often has happened in, the, in Christianity and even in Messianic Judaism. There's this initial draw. We go with the, the Jewish people. We're taken in by them. We want to be with them. But then after a while, we kind of get really confident and feel good about ourselves and think that we know the most, and we don't really need the Jewish people so much anymore. And this is what happened in Christianity at the beginning, in the very first couple centuries. They were all Jews. Then the Jews said, we'll bring the Gentiles in. And Gentiles were thrilled. This is great. We get to be part of the group. And then with about 50 years, the Gentiles said, you know, we don't really need the Jews. And it hasn't gone well since. So um, I feel like the same thing sometimes happens with Messianic stuff. We get all excited. We want to keep the Torah. We want to keep Shabbat. We want to read the Tanakh. We want to read the first five books. Um, and I'm not saying we have to do everything that Jews say. I don't. But we lose that respect. We feel like, because Paul says very clearly in Romans chapter 11, don't boast against the branches. Don't be like, well, I got Messiah and you don't, so therefore I know so much more than you do. Um, or, or worse, God has rejected you and he chose me instead. Um, instead, uh, Paul emphasizes you should keep that humility because he says you do not support the, brand, the root, but the root supports you. And that's where Lot, I think, makes his mistake. And because he leaves Avram, things just go downhill from him from there. First, he's captured after he's living too close to Sodom and Gomorrah, and then his whole family is, is um, traumatized, and many of them are wiped out in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And his progeny, his descendants, never live up to the righteousness of, of him. He is the peak, aside from Ruth, who's you know superwoman. But everyone else, basically, um, it's a downward slope. And I think that I feel like that's partly due to the fact that he left Avram, and that was his his mistake in that portion. So one of the things we did last time that I thought was so great, bounce around. 
anywhere in the Torah portion you have something cool, something you never saw before in particular, um, raise your hand, we'll jump in there, and we'll just kind of ping-pong about. While you think about that for a second, I'm going to grab my kumash so that I don't lose track of what I want to say. So should we talk while you're gone? Absolutely. You want to say something? Go for it. If you didn't want to say something, you're stuck now. <laughs> I will. You're going to say something. Well, just in the first, in the beginning of the portion, I there was just an interesting thing, and I still haven't really figured it out. So in English, it does. It says clearly in ver chapter twelve, verse five. You know that. It, uh, Abram took everything. Abram took everything, and uh, and the souls they made in Haran. Right. But the Hebrew is definitely singular. Right. It's Hanesh. I thought that was cool too. The soul, and so I, I couldn't. I mean, because even Rashi's commentary doesn't pick up, or he doesn't comment, I should say, on the oddity of that being a singular. But he just therefore, you know, he kind of makes a commentary about. Oh yeah, this could have been like the servants. It could have been people that converted to the faith that that you know Abram brought into the faith. So there's a couple explanations, but none that addressed the oddity of the word used. Well, it's not the only time that we have like a weirdness with the servants. So later in I think it's chapter 14 with the war with the five kings, it says that he goes and he takes his men with him. But the there's a, some I think there is a singular in that, and so the Hebrew says. He doesn't have 318 men. He has Eliezer. And Eliezer's name, the, the, the numbers that make up his name, if you look at the, uh, the gematria, adds up to 318. So Eliezer fights off all five kings by himself. <laughs> <laughs> but what's so funny about this is... X-Men. Right, exactly. Um, it's singular, just like we were describing. It almost kind of feels like they actually only had Eliezer all this time. He was the superhero and he got them. Um, I also saw that. One thing that I thought about, I didn't see anything in the commentaries, but one thing I thought about was um, it almost kind of felt like maybe they took the soul with them, kind of like it was themselves. Like they, they took the lessons that they'd learned, the things that they brought with them from Haran. So even though he's leaving his father's house, he's leaving his land, it wasn't like he was, he was personally starting over. It was like he was taking with him the, the, um, the, exper the, the spiritual experiences he'd had and going on his journey. But um, but that was just you know those are just a couple of thoughts. But I don't know if you have any is the speculation. Ever in I don't know if I've ever heard the Shekinahs in Nefesh. I guess it could be the master of all souls. Um, but yeah, I thought that was interesting. Han Nefesh. Yeah. Yes, sir. And I have also have Josiah over here. So. So. Uh, in in Christianity. We're taught that man is basically evil. And, uh, I wish it was basically evil. We're taught that man is 100% evil. Well, it depends on what flavor of Christianity, but yeah, you're on the evil side of the fence, and Messiah can bring you to the... To the, the good side of the fence. The good side of the fence. Um, and it's not, it's not that Judaism doesn't believe that. There is sin, there is a, right. a, an animal side. I actually just read recently, they said that Yetzir Hurrah enters the baby as he leaves the womb. <clears throat> yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and I, and I believe that. I mean, you know, yeah. my son is almost perfect, but yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> but the, looks perfect. Yeah. The, the concept, He's a perfect baby. The concept uh, that Judaism prefers to focus or, or dwell upon is that we're made in the image of God. 
Right. Right. That right. Hashem puts His Spirit within us. This is the breath of life, and so forth. And uh, and the Hasidic concept in Lech Lecha is instead of translating it necessarily um, "go for yourself" or "in your going go," um, they flip it and go to yourself. Okay. Because it can be translated the same way. Right. Uh, in a sense of you need to go to what you really are. Right. The image of God. And, and this whole Christian teaches us how Avram is, is drawn, if you will, back to a relationship with God and represents him on the earth and is the beginning of the people that are called by God, chosen by God, right. and are emulating, if you will, that which he put within them, that spark, as the Hasid would say, of, of divinity within them. Um, I think if that's out of balance, you know, then everybody's godlike, and, and it can be... Um, Weird. Yeah, and, and be converted or torqued into, you know, um, a humanism deal, right, which I think yeah. our public school system is right. going to teach. Um, so there you go. So... Um, from your land, from your birthplace, from your father's house, to the land that I will show you. So go from all things, including, so you're going to hmm. a completion of, of really who you are, where I want you, and what you're going to do. And in that, in that fashion, that helped to me this week, because that's, is that really what, what we're all supposed to be doing? <clears throat> going back to, well that's the thing I, I think. I need to, I need to well, stop thinking yeah. about the old Right, Joe, and then you know. But the great part about what I do like about the Jewish perspective on that, um, whether you agree or not, the point they're trying to get that I think is so important is that it is within you, not like because Paul says that in, in a sense when he says that um, you know with every temptation there's a way of escape. God, God doesn't condemn you to do bad things, and He's faithful to provide. And, he's, and yeah, right. And so I think that when you read um, that idea in Judaism, part of the reason for it is because they want to issue hope rather than your natural, so to speak, nature being purely evil. So therefore, you just default to that all the time and there's no shot for you to do something good. Judaism's argument is intended to be you can be good because you should be good. Like, God made you to and, be good. And God desires you to be good and God will empower you to be good and you can be good because there's part of him in you Right, so, right. Yeah, and cool. so I, like I said, whether you agree with the theology of that or not, the point of it to say that you should be um, inspired rather than discouraged, Amen. I think is very good. Yeah. Um, I have Josiah, and I'll come back over here. Yes, sir. Um, back to what uh, Barter said about the souls actually being the soul, but not on the singular, but the plural, the souls that they made. Well, in my. Uh, in the Bible, it says, the commentary says, the souls referred to those whom they had converted to faith in Adonai. For Abraham, Avram, converted men and Misrah, the woman. According to the simple meaning, however, it refers to the servants they had acquired, by, that was a, by Rashi, who agreed unanimously to accompany Avram on his mission. Yeah, it was great. Avram is, is very good at this. We'll, we'll see in the next parasha, Lot was not. And that's another thing. Is I think, again, I don't have to disparage Lot. Lot's Lod, a righteous guy. He does good things. He's not on the same level as Avram. Abraham, 
um, when he was off, uh, he, he drew people to God. Lot does a fine job of maintaining his own righteousness. But he, uh, but if you're looking at his family, he does a very poor job of sharing that, of getting other people to follow God too. Avram is known for bringing them in. In fact, there's also a cool midrashim about how he does it. And one of the most classic ones is he would he was known for his hospitality. So he'd invite people over for dinner, they would have a meal, and then he would make sure they all said Birkat Hamazon. And if they refused, he would tell them, "Well, this is my expectation for payment." You either pray the prayer with me, or you can give me 750 shekels, you know, for the meal that we just ate. Because it was pretty expensive, because I don't skim, you know. And that was basically his, his arrangement, because he was trying to draw people in to the true God. Um, but so that's when they when they have it later on, again, next week, Barsha, skipping ahead. We're not going to be together anyway. So um, when he washes the feet, that's another thing he said, is that in that part of the world, there was all this weird pantheism where they think God is in, like, everything or whatever else. There are people who worship the dust. That's odd. I don't get that. That's, that's not pantheism. That's panentheism. That works, too. Um, there's the Greek guy. So then, um, in the, anyway, in the, the, the point they're, they're trying to say, though, is that, like, they, he would have them wash their feet specifically to kind of, like, challenge that idolatry to be like, we're going to just leave that one behind. You're in my home my rules, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, Avram is very good at that. I've got Greg, and then Joshua, and then my dad, and then my father-in-law. Uh, just on that Hasidic point, the times that I read that, I do, it comes to mind as we've been going through our Tuesday night sessions, reading through Paul, it, it, there's, there's a bridge there, because you read that, and I think the only time that it starts to become an issue, with, at least for Christians, is when you start applying that to everybody. Right. But when you just apply that to the elect, as sure, they would put sure. it, yeah. you start to realize like how cool that is. And I mm. always feel inspired reading Hasidic things like that, because I, I feel that way. I feel like God just called me. So then time, exactly. So then the times that you get discouraged, you, you read that, and you think about that, and you're like, whoa, okay, that is extremely applicable to me. Whether this is some you know, universal theological point is irrelevant to your point. It's yeah. the, the, the point that's being conveyed is that this is for me personally. Like, Hashem has done something special for me, mm-hmm. and I need to look to that, remember that, and get back to that place yeah, so, so I'm not distracted. Yeah. It's almost like, yeah, and being more true to who God wants you to be, yeah. but that that's already inside of you. And that's really, um, Judaism, I don't know even how they really view it from a um, global perspective, because the most emphasis that I've seen is always on the Jewish side. That because you're Jewish, therefore you have all the spiritual significance in you. You have you've been circumcised, so it's like you have this like but inherent. All created for a purpose. Right. No, absolutely. No, my point though is going back to what Greg was saying, and the idea that like as believers, you can you can point to that, and that's kind of what the Jewish people are doing from their side as well. But either way, regardless of again theology of it, to, to look at it and say I can do what's right, um, and not just. Um, if it were possible, or if God could help me do X, it's like He's already, as I think it's Peter says, He's given you all that pertains to life and godliness. So you already have it. Oh, I've got Joshua, and then I've got your dad. Then yeah, ping right here. Okay, so I was been, I've been reading through the um, battle uh, Cheddar Leomer, Cheddar Leomer, uh-huh. the Cheese uh, King. <laughs> so it says that in verse ten that the kings of Sidon and Gomorrah fell into them while the rest fled to a mountain. The between walls? Yeah. Then it says the king of Sidon went out after his return. Ooh. 
What does that mean? That means there's either you can sit at home or you can just stay alive after falling in. Right. There's actually a really cool midrash on this. So the sages did exactly what you just did. They read that and they go, that's weird. I thought he was dead. So what the sages say is he falls in the salt pit and everyone thinks he's dead. Because, I mean, who gets out of that, right? And the, um, the, and God miraculously gets the king of Sodom out. And the reason why God does this is actually because um, tradition holds that Avram, much like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, their Hebrew names, were thrown into the fiery furnace and they survived, right? Well, a tradition holds that Avram is also given an ultimatum by um, Nimrod and said, you can bow down to my idol or whatever, or I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. So Avram gets thrown in the fiery furnace, something along those lines. He then beats up in the fiery furnace, of course. He survives, miracle. So he comes to the land of Canaan. Now that happens in the land, his original land, Babylon. He comes to the land of Canaan, and the, the, it's treated like a legend. There's no way Avram really survived the fiery furnace. No way. So God allows the king of Sodom to have a similar experience. He falls in like this oil well or whatever, comes back out again unscathed, and everyone's like, oh, it can be done. So that, in a way, they would ultimately end up believing that Avram had also been saved. So it's kind of like this funny little, like, it's like this little, like, you know, sneak move by God. I'm going to convince you that it can be done by finding one of my enemies and doing the same thing for him. Um, and then it also creates this kind of, like, superhero-like showdown um, when Avram and the king of Sodom meet up. So they, now they're kind of on, like, the same level. They both kind of had this miraculous life-saving moment together, or separately, but, you know, both had it. And so there's kind of like, almost like, you know, uh, who's really the number one here? So, so the king of Sodom kind of tries to sneakily make Avram his subordinate, lower than him, by offering to give him all the stuff. And Avram refuses, and he repeatedly points back to Hashem as his support and inspiration. And ultimately, in throughout all this, the real number one person in that story is Melchizedek. Do, 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 do. Anyway, um, who, well, we don't know exactly who he is. Could be Shem, could be Messiah. If he is Messiah, that's even cooler because he actually was dead. But anyway, side point. Yes, sir. Just to affirm what Josiah was talking about, that, that unanimity in the word soul in those three and 19, along with Avram, that basically it's, in a way, the Torah is saying they're all together in purpose. Yeah. Yeah, he had that capability. Yes, sir. Back to what you were saying with um, Avram and Lot and how Avram is uh, the, the, the better one, the more honorable one, and right. the one where Lot should have honored him and so forth. Um, the, the, the sages say that in, in, in offering Lot, we, we, he tells him, we got to separate Mm -hmm. You take whichever side you want. Wherever you go, I'll take the other way. Mm -hmm. Implying, though, according to the to the sages, that he would always be nearby to help if he needed help, mm -hmm. since he was the greater of the two. Mm -hmm. um, and the sages say that this was an example to Lot. And even though you know he's in Sodom and all of that, his example then in offering him whatever direction, whatever land he wanted, was what gave him the courage to actually protect the hmm. two 
visitors to Sedona that morning. Or That's that cool. Evening, you know. Okay. Yeah, cool. Yeah. He he. We need to remember that well, the sages don't necessarily know, and it's sort of a a wash. Half of them say that he was wicked. Says right here. The other half say he wasn't. Right. The apostolic scriptures are clear. He's righteous. His righteous soul was vexed. Now we could argue this soul is going to be righteous. Oh. So, <laughs> yeah. So anyway. But or as they kind of play the game with Noah, how righteous yeah, was he right. really well, in his generation? Comparatively speaking, doing for you. Yeah. But I do think though that Abraham's impact is so visible in Lot's life you because bet. when Lot, what's Lot's like defining characteristic in that story? Hospitality. Absolutely. Hospitality to the point of of defending of them. Defending them. But that he he considers it like like almost like a number one virtue, like which is which is important. Because tradition, and then also kind of playing off of the Tanakh, the prophets, they teach the Sodom and Amorah, their number one sin was refusing hospitality. They were absolutely uh, so incredibly selfish, they refused to share with anyone. So Lot, but where does that come from? Obviously he's not learning from them, he learned it from Abraham. Right. Abraham is king of hospitality. They say that his tent was open in all four directions so that he could bring visitors coming from anywhere. You know, that idea that he was always available, it's really quite impressive. And he actually sets the standard in multiple areas on what hospitality looks like. Um, he walks the men down to the side of the road. It's like there's a Jewish teaching that you should um, basically make sure your visitors are safe before you part ways with them. And that's basically what Avram was doing. Pretty cool. He, he, is, he is the superhero in the bunch. One other quick thing about his tent that's very cool. In chapter 12, I believe it is, when it says that he set up his tent... So the, there's, a, there's a vowel pointing there that makes it an O. And if you listen to Aaron and Evie read it, you heard um, uh, something like Olo, Olo. Oh, yeah, we all heard that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, heard the, you, heard the, you, heard the, you heard the O sound, which is his tent. But the vowel pointing isn't, like, I mean, as we all know, the vowels aren't really there. Um, so it can also be read Ola, which is her tent. So the tradition is that Avraham, Avram, Always made sure to set up Sarai's tent first before he put up in his nice. his other one, which I think is really nice. cool. I mean, I um, you you kind of set an example, and a lot of your I think hopefully all your sons will want to do it of opening the door um, for your for your wife whenever you get in the car. You know, my dad kind of kind of grew up in a household of where you you know you let the woman in, you open the door for them, and they're coming in whether the women these days want it or not. Yeah. Um, but that idea of deference, of, of recognizing that, um, as Peter says, the so-called weaker vessel, but the idea that you're responsible for taking care of them. Um, and then I think you had a comment. Yeah, just real quick, uh, 1311, it says that Lot traveled from the east. Yeah, right. And they parted from one another. So it's talking about the direction, and it's talking about Abram, and it's he went away from Abram, and he went away from the east, implying, if you will, away from the righteousness and where right. the temple would have been, you know, the whole right. thing. Right, so. and then on top of that, east there is a weird word. So yeah. in Hebrew, um, when they do directions, like we have east, west, north, south, and it's just it just means that. But a lot of the Hebrew words oftentimes are references to something else. Um, so direct, the directional pointing is actually... Um, used for a reason, symbolic. So east in this is Kedem, which is also like the beginning or origin. So they say, or ancient. 
So the sages say that when Lot leaves Abram, it's like he's leaving the beginning, he's leaving the ancient one, he's leaving Hashem behind and going towards Sodom and Morah. Um, which is, a, yeah, it's very unfortunate. It doesn't work so well for him either. Um, so along the way, uh, did anyone uh, did anyone get, I mean, I know that uh, Hebrew is hard sometimes to, to pull up and, and having time to read the English and the Hebrew, but did anyone read a really weird way they talk about the plagues in Egypt and Sarah? I did not, but we were wondering if it was the plug up while the earth was this thing, but I think that's later, well, isn't that, it? They, it is later, that's Avi Melech, yeah. but the tradition holds that it was the same, oh, or boy. something similar to that. Um, but then, no, what was really cool about this one is, I think, so hang on, I guess it's chapter 12, um, and it, in Hebrew, it says that, um, when it talks about the, the, the plagues, Adonai afflicted Pharaoh along with his household with severe plagues because of the matter of Sarai, the wife of Avram. Well, in Hebrew, that says, and this is um, I'm pulling from, I think it's Rashi who says, makes this point, that um, al-divar sarai. Now, what's weird in Hebrew, like we talked about et earlier, has two meanings. Devar has two meanings. Tavar can be thing, anything, or it can be word. So they said that sarai, whenever like someone tried to get close to whatever else, she would say something and they would instantly get sick. You know, so um, you can understand then, yeah, you can understand then why, because um, I guess really if you read it, it's kind of confusing. It's like, how does Pharaoh figure out that she's, you know, Abraham's wife? And um, and then later the tradition holds that Hagar is actually Pharaoh's daughter because he was really impressed with them. So he thought she'd be better off being a handmaid there than, you know. So it's like, why? Well, it's like, you got a woman walking around, you know talking to big, strong, tough Egyptian guys, saying something, and they're, you know, dropping on the floor, writhing in pain. I think that, uh, I think that I would be pretty impressed, too. Like, oh, I think the reason we're all sick is because of her. <laughs> but the word of Sarai. What's, but if you think about it, what is cool about that is it does kind of remind me a lot about Moshe. Moshe does so many things, you know, by, his, yeah. by things he says. Um, and you kind of get that playing out there as well. Uh, but the important thing is, I think that we sometimes lose track of this. Sai is righteous superwoman. I mean, you know, this, this particular Parsha, she has an incident with Hagar. It doesn't go so well. We kind of feel like we kind of judge Sarai maybe too harshly, I think. Um, but Sarai is amazing. I mean, Peter holds up Sarai as the, like, epitome of honoring her husband. He, she is top shelf, the number one. And so... Uh, Judaism makes no bones about it. She is righteous. She is a prophetess. When she speaks, the reason why Abraham listens to her is because she speaks with like the spirit of Hashem. I mean, when you talk about, so when we talk about her mouth, her words, as she says, there's power there. So whether or not she's actually, you know, uh, making people fall over with plagues is irrelevant in that regard. The point is that like we, we need to hold her up um, and learn things from her. There's a lot of really cool stuff there. Well, she speaks later on to Hagar, and she miscarries, right? That's a that's all. Yeah, it's a midrash, but it's a really good one. Mm. It is a midrash. But you're right because it is cool. oh, you're yeah, <laughs> you got it out of Brown Book, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah that, I thought that was really cool too. That, well, because what they say is and this is um, that when she speaks badly about uh, uh, Hagar, you know, that she's mistreating her and whatever else, um, and she's complaining to Abraham that. Uh, because the negative thing she says, Hagar is a miscarrying. And the reason why they say Hagar miscarries is because later, when she meets the angel, 
Did you read this part? I'm going to take, take your yeah, thunder. So I mean, she, meets the, he meets, she meets the angel at the well. He says, you will conceive. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the sages go, wait a minute. She already had a baby. She was pregnant. This teaches us she lost that one. And this one... Because we don't hear about it. Right. We don't hear about it. But Agar, I think, is like... Remember at the very beginning, we were talking about Lot and Lot's um, kind of a, a warning sign, I think, to us to make sure that we always keep God's people in the right hierarchical order. Mm-hmm. You know, they're number one. We're the losers that get to tag along, and we are thrilled for that. Um, the uh, Hagar kind of has the same thing. So Hagar gets added into that family, as the tradition holds that Pharaoh uh, gives her off in an effort like, "Hey, they're great. You should probably stick with them." Hagar gets to uh, marry Abraham, so this is like huge honor. I mean, unbelievable. And then the Hebrew, it says, after she conceives, the Hebrew says that, um, let me try to get the exact phrasing. Uh, well, I'll just, I'll translate it. Yes, it's easier. It says that um, Sarai, we might read, becomes unimportant in her eyes or diminished in her eyes. The, um, I think the, the word there is tekel gevara, which, so you get here the gibor, like we talk about God is great, right? Strong, whatever. Um, and I think tekel, if I recall correctly, if it's the same word, I assume it is comes from the same story with um, Daniel and, and yeah and, and Belshazzar where he says uh, God writes on the wall tekel tekel many farsin which is to say um, you've been counted and found lacking so um, yeah right um, so it's almost like the idea here I think in my mind is that she fa- felt like Sarai was lacking greatness um, this is an interesting way of talking about that. She didn't think of herself as better, necessarily. She didn't necessarily she didn't despise Sarai, but she diminished her. She lowered her her esteem, and um, obviously this changed the relationship, which is why Sarai is all upset to Avraham. Um, to Avraham, um, and the angel doesn't give her a pass when she gets meets the angel. The angel doesn't say, now, "I know Sarai's been mean to you, but." You got to be the bigger person, you know, try to make it work. He says specifically, submit yourself to her leadership. You need to be under her. And I couldn't, again, help but think about, like, this relationship that we have as Gentiles to the Jewish people. It's like, I, again, it's not, again, it's not say I do everything that they say. I don't. But I think the important thing is that you need to have that respect. They realize they were here first. God chose them. They were the ones who held the scriptures in their hands literally you know the recipients of it from god um and so there needs to be a deference and a respect there whether they recognize messiah or not but especially the ones who do but even those who do not to see them as um as precious to god um and and worthy of of being heard yes sir so we get a new name of god in this chapter we do right so uh, chapter 14, verse 18, um, picks up, and we go down to verse 22, and we get this name four times. Uh, I'll read it in the uh, very cool version. Melchizedek, <laughs> um, king of Shalem, who was in fact Shem, the son of Noach, brought out bread and wine to show that he was not angry with Abram for killing the people of Alim, his descendants. He was a priest to the supreme. Supreme God. That's El Elyon. That's right. We sing about it, right? He blessed him, saying, Blessed be Abram to the El Elyon, Supreme God, 
who possesses heaven and earth. Blessed be the supreme God, El Elyon, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Um, yeah, 20. Uh, Avram gave him a tenth, Maaser, from everything he owned. So, uh, oh, then I guess to, to 22, right? Avram said to the king of Sodom, I raise my hand in an oath to God, El Elyon, the supreme God, who possesses heaven and earth, that I will not take from the spoils either thread or shoelace, nor will I take payment from whatever treasure you possess, so that you will not say, I have made Avram wealthy, for God himself promised to make me rich. So, um, that's that's big. There's a, another revelation of who God is, and uh, I, I think that we, we went through the creation story, mm-hmm. and, and now we've got a, another name. Another name. It's, it's a big deal. It is a big deal. And um, you also get a new attribute, and they translate that correctly. They say possessor of heaven and earth. Most of the time you'll see maker of heaven and earth. Both are right. Um, the same word here is in that that prayer that we prayed this morning. It says, Creates everything, but kone is not the normal word for makes. Rabbi Foreman, again, in the, the beast that crashes the door, points out that the same word is used when, when Eve names Cain. His name, Cain, comes from the word for acquire, which is kone. Um, when she says, I have acquired a man with God, uh, Rabbi Foreman points out this is a really weird way of saying that. You would think she'd say, I've made a man with God. Uh, but instead she says, I've acquired a man. And he points out that this word in Hebrew um, ca- carries with it, as a, when you are a creator, it carries with it a sense of ownership. ownership yeah. That when you, so like if you make a, um, if you, well, it, my dad knows this because he's, you, I remember he introduced me to it. If you were to make software and put it on the internet for free, for shareware, then you've, you're the creator, but you're not the owner. You no longer possess it. You no longer possess it. You have chosen to make it open possession to anyone. But when you develop software and you copyright it, now you are the owner, as well as the creator. Um, and, and that carries with it more significance. Um, and it seems like it matters more to you when you are also the, the, the not only the, this is what Rabbi Foreman points out. It's, it's the, the difference between plural and singular. Right, so... When your dad writes software, copyrights it, he's not only the creator, he's the possessor. Right. There's only one possessor. Right. But if he, as he's already done, puts software out there that is available for all of us to possess, right. there are many possessors. There are many possessors. But there's still one creator. Right. Only but one there's creator. There's a lot of possessors. But, it, but it, I think it demonstrates, um, Sometimes it demonstrates a goodness, but it definitely demonstrates a little bit more distance between you and your creation when you make its possession open-ended. When you claim something and say, this is mine, I made it, that shows that it matters to you significantly. Enough to go through the trouble of making sure that it's yours, fighting off other people, that are legally or otherwise, to say that it's yours. So when it says here that God is the maker of heaven and earth or the possessor of heaven and earth, it's that idea. God didn't just make the planet as the old watchmaking religion taught when just step away and say, okay, you're on your own now. God is the possessor of heaven and earth. He owns it, and he owns it personally. It matters to him, which is really cool because in this passage, what is, what is the king of Sodom and Abraham having a little bit of disagreement about? Possessions. They're talking about stuff. And Abraham says, I don't need any of your stuff. Because I'm with the possessor of heaven and earth. 
Yeah, pretty cool. And he's so much less me, I have 10%, I can get away. I can get away, right, right. I have more than a, um, which is really, it's very, um, it's kind of a dramatic moment. Also, they, the, the bread and wine thing that they mentioned, there's a tradition, um, I think it's Rashi talks about the idea that it plays off of some of the offerings, because there's supposed to be like a grain and a wine offered with all the offerings. So there's like a linkage there uh, between Melchizedek and Avraham, who's the father of Levi, who would eventually be the priests. Which Hebrews catches exactly. That's why in the book of Hebrews it says that Melchizedek, the, the order of Melchizedek, whether we're talking about the person or not, um, the order of Melchizedek as the priestly line is more significant than the Levitical line, specifically because Avram gives a tenth to him, and Avram is the head of the, of the Levites. So um, the book of Hebrews, the author of the book of Hebrews, uh, whoever he most likely may be, um, they... Uh, obviously are seeing something that Judaism also has seen, which I always thought is cool. I love to remind us of that, because sometimes it's easy to feel like, um, uh, sometimes it feels like it has to be one or the other, but actually I feel like God is making revelation a lot of times on both sides of the aisle, and a lot of times they're the same. Sometimes they learn from each other. I do think sometimes that a lot of Jewish sages read Paul. Anyway, I've got side in my phone. Just to tag on to that, thank you, God bless you for your deference. Um, the we talked about El Elyon, and this is the first time in chapter 14 of Genesis where it appears. It doesn't appear again in the Torah. Oh, wow. Until one last time. Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 8, so we're towards the back end of the repeating of what's gone on. The Most High, I mean, what are we reading about in 14, but this, like you were saying, this interaction between the chosen one, and there's only one Hebrew right now, right? Right. The chosen one. Right. And the nations. Right. And he's dealing with the nations, whether it's the four that won or the five that lost. Right. Even one of them was the king of the Goyim, right? Right. So it's interesting that the, the last time this is used in the Torah is when the Most High gave to the nations, the Goyim, their inheritance. When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Oh, that's cool. So that, that whole tie-in. And I like that, too, because you mentioned this as an introduction to the name of God. What's amazing about many names of God, um, well, not many, some names of God, is there's not a automatic translation for it. Right. Um, you learn by context what it means. And that's what exactly what you got here and then there. Elion has this characteristic of not only being supreme or high, but also has a deal has, uh, with ownership right. as the, as the yeah. creator and possessor of all, of all things. He's giving their inheritance. Right. Um, at least that's my interpretation of it Absolutely. anyway. And I think that's cool that you, because I think that's one of the things we, in, in, in um, when we, Julian and I named Richard, our son, um, we had a couple of names in mind. We went with that one, um, besides the fact that it's a really cool name, it's my dad's name. Uh, we also went with that one because one of the very first things I kept talking about him is how strong he was as an infant. It was an attribute that we saw as kind of like a, of a sign or whatever, but as, as like, well, his name fits the attribute because the name means strong ruler. Um, God's always working that way, but like in the extreme. So the names of God almost always are tied to something he does. Um, it's an attribute. Um, and it's something that like is helpful to us when you read the names of God to be thinking about, well, what's the attribute that he's trying to highlight here? Because some people will comment, especially, you know, the modern pagans and whatnot will get irritated at the number of names of God as though somehow there must be 
you know, many gods or many writers who couldn't pick which name they liked best. They just, you know, they, they tag teamed. Okay, fine. You can use your name for this chapter. I'll use my name for the next chapter. Um, but the, uh, but really the Jewish perspective, which I think is awesome, is to say that every name of God has a separate attribute, a characteristic, a defining, uh, element to it. You see that name, they're emphasizing that. And the action that caused that name to be used. Right. So when you see, um, and some of it's traditional, and some of it's straight from the text. So when you see a name like El Elyon, you could be thinking about Supreme God, Great God, also possessed heaven and earth, so that you can see very clearly, quickly, the connection between this passage in Genesis and that passage in Deuteronomy. Yeah. Because it's about God owning and digging out exactly. to people what is his, really. Just that. Uh, about the, uh, I have acquired a man from Adonai in Genesis 4. Mm -hmm. Well, last, uh, on Rashid, when we did the Torah discussion, um, you said that I think it was either you and Sister Tarini that when one of you said that uh, originally when a woman was created that she was over man. <laughs> right. So I that's a tradition. Yeah. If it had wisdom and value, it came from Mister Stone. <laughs> I just realized that I have acquired a man from Adonai, meaning that she has her own man to eventually rule over. In a way, yeah, there's the Stop ownership it. there. Because it's the mom. That will yeah. preach in a Gentile community. Be careful. Um, right, because because God had said at that by that point that her husband was her leader. But the mother was, uh, yeah, it's, there is a leadership there. We get that in Proverbs, too. Like the importance of respecting your mother, looking up to your mother, my mom sitting in the corner. So we say, you know, good things about my mom, yes. No, we, uh, whether she's there or not, because I, that's my responsibility. She brought me into the world. I owe her everything. So in that regard... More than everything. Right. So in that regard, there is an, there is an automatic respect. But God specifically says in, in, the, in the Torah that we continue to read, you know, honor your father and mother, because then they equate that with honoring God. The same level. Um, and it's both. It's not just your father, but it's, but it's both. One of the things in this passage, um, a new thing I had not read before... Um, I believe, again, coming from Rashi, talking about the commentary, looking at um, Genesis chapter 17 with the covenant. So the covenant, love this passage. Everyone really runs all of this passage. Very, very cool. I never thought about the types of animals that Avram uses to chop in half. And then this weird reference where it says he did not cut the birds in half. What are we talking about here? Well, there's two things going on. Number one, each of these animals has to do with an offering. And the, the sages are, they, they literally break down. There's three of each one, right? So they're like, well, this one refers to the three offerings that you do with these ones. These, there's three offerings you do with this one, and the goats, there's like the you know, poor offering, and the heifer, you have the, the heifer for the guy who dies. We don't know who killed him, that he break the neck in the, in the valley. You got the heifer for um, the, the sin offering for like the, uh, the leader who sins. There's like another one. Anyway, the, so they go through all of them. And then um, the other angle, I thought was also very cool, is they said that God says uh, you split the animals but not the birds. So they say that this was symbolic to say that the nations who represent represented by the animals will all die. They'll all be destroyed. Not die, but they'll be defeated. Um, but the Jewish people who are represented by the dove, and they quote then from the Tanakh to prove their point. The, the dove would not be divided. So the people of Israel will ultimately be victorious. So they quote from Song of Songs, which talks about the people being a dove. They quote from Daniel, talking about Greece being like a goat. They've got, um, 
oh, where was the? I'm trying to remember now what all the other animals were. They had one for oh the the ram, I guess. Then it's they in had the same place with Daniel. What? That's in the same place with Daniel, right? Yeah, yeah. He goes through two different kings. Of... Yeah, they had multiple. So he goes through like they go through each individual animal represented by some nation, leadership nation. Um, and so they all end up being divided, whereas the, the, the doves were not. And of course, again, as we get into Leviticus, we'll see that God tells them not to split the birds all the way in half um, as part of the offering, whether that was um, symbolically referencing Abraham in deference to him, or whether it was the other way around, where Abraham already knows the rules of the offerings um, and, and is uh, keeping that kind of unclear but that's still that was pretty cool well, it's kind of like we were talking last week about Noah having clean animals right. in the ark that was a long time before that was given that's right right yeah so how did he know and not even a reference to Eden because he didn't eat it right because his relationship said to offerings totally different experience which you get from Cain and Abel yes sir well I didn't know if there was a way that you know we, we can apply the same concept of the, the explanation of the birds to that seemingly superfluous verse of the birds of prey descending and Abraham chasing the world. Like, talk Sorry. about almost irrelevant, right? Like, why, you know, that, that's one of those things where it's like, that could have definitely been left out had we, had it not been significant in some way. And I couldn't think of really anything, any reason why it would be significant until you start wondering about like, well, what if you applied the same thought or, or interpretation of birds in that case, where you, you sort of have this idea of like, perhaps like Jews in a case, or, or those of Israel that are are very hostile towards the nations, perhaps, oh, that okay. Abraham could be correcting, I don't know, that is a bit yeah. of a stretch, but that, it no, was, I think that's I, I interesting point there. such an interesting verse to just throw in there, you know? The Revelation the com- Right, well, oh, that one. Revelation 18. Which is... Uh, Birds and ravens, every hateful bird. Actually, that's awful. Revelation 20. You're talking about Babylon. Yeah. Are, are you, do you not think of uh, the, the woman whose husband is killed and she keeps the birds away? Isn't it in Judges? Maybe it's later. Can't she keeps the birds away? Yeah. There's, there's, yeah. The woman who's the corpse. Killed. Keeps them away from the corpse. They die. Okay. Who, uh, who's the fool? Nadab. With, with no, Abigail. Abigail. Right. What happened to him? He dies from a heart attack. I'll find it. <laughs> anyway, well, that's good. That's good. But I was going to say, real quick, on the birds. Yeah, 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 the birds. So, I, um, and I apologize to Rashi and or the other sages, because I'm going to lose track of whether or not Rashi's the one saying this or he's quoting someone. But in the Rashi commentary. <laughs> Rashi um, forgives you. Uh, the uh, the comment is actually on that point. There he was like where the birds are, and so he looks at it and he says that the birds are in reference to King David, and that when Abraham shoes them away, he was symbolically saying not yet. Like the King David's supposed to conquer the the people the peoples, and Abraham is like it's not time for that yet. Not till Mashiach comes that we can really uh, uh, take command and control, so to speak. So, but yeah, making the same illusion that you're making. They're saying, well, the birds represent people, the people of Israel here, so who are they over here? Um, and then kind of tying it in. But I liked yours. I thought yours was very good. Yes, sir. Yeah. The king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that had been between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. I'm reading for 2 Samuel 21. 
the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Meholathite, and he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of the harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah, the concubine of Saul, had done, since it was pretty cool, kept the birds away from the bodies, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Yabesh Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul of Gilboa. He brought up there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan. They gathered the bones and yada, 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 and there it is. So it's, a, it's an important thing. It's a big deal to respect the dead, to keep the birds away from them and stuff okay. like that. It just, they're special. I would go so far as to say that they are set apart. They're holy now because they've died. <laughs> and that's how Abraham treated these animals, yeah. that they were separate. They were holy. And he, he protected them. And I well, think that's cool. Yeah, and it fits too because we're talking about this is the covenant of God. Exactly. You know, the covenant, they call it between the parts. But, um, of course, you know, the Hebrew is breed, cut. Right. right. So it's like literally cutting. So that this is how you make a covenant back then. You cut yeah. an animal in half. I thought the cutting was done by the torch. That cut between. Well, Abram slices the animals in half. He separates. There's a lot of cutting going on. Yeah, well, maybe. Um, but then God walks through the parts, um, kind of a down the aisle moment, which I've always heard traditionally. I don't know if this is true or not. But traditionally, I've always heard this one of those like, may God do to me like the animals if I don't keep the covenant that we're making today, that kind of thing. So God is effectively. What's cool about this, and I think it's so dramatic, is that God feels the need. This is special. And this is significant. When he makes a covenant with Abraham here, he does it with action. I think this is the only time that God makes a covenant by doing something, besides maybe um, the rainbow. But I mean, extremely rare. Normally God says, I enter a covenant with you. I raise up my hand. And it's all about verbal. It's all, God makes covenants, he makes promises, and he automatically keeps them. He doesn't need to prove it somehow. But with Abraham, he does a physical act of entering into covenant with Abraham, um, that's dramatic. This is, this is important. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's really, and it, and it reminds me even like with Yeshua, who does the covenant in my, in my blood with the bread and the wine. Again, it's an, acti it's an action that's being done between God and his people. And that, um, it's, it should stand out to us. So. The end of what you're saying is verse 18. In chapter 15. On that day, God struck a covenant with Abram, saying, I have given this land to your descendants. Yeah. But in chapter 13, he said, Get up and walk through the land across its length and its breadth, for I am going mm. to give it to you. It's future tense. Mm -hmm. And the Satan's look at this and go, Well, this is past tense. I have given this to you. So now he owns it. Mm -hmm. So their argument now is that when the children of Israel actually go into the land, they already own it. Right. They're going in to take possession of it, but they already own it because it was given to their forefather Abraham. 
because even before that, God said he would, and now he said he did, and now you, well, there you go. And now he has. Yeah. Yeah, they, um, I found the thing I read this week here in the Rashi commentary that was new that I thought was cool was they, uh, they point out that one verse where it says that the Canaanite was dead in the land, and it's kind of a weird, mm. again, just kind of a throwaway verse, like, why is this here? Um, and the, the commentators took a look at then, the Canaanite was then in the land, as saying the Canaanite wasn't in the land earlier. And so what they say is that the land of Israel, if you look at the geography of things, um, uh, we know that Shem represents kind of like the sort of Middle Eastern Asian peoples. Um, Yefet, Japheth, is Europeans and you know Westerners. And then Ham is in um, like Africa, basically. Um, so if that is like legitimate, you know, then that makes Canaan an anomaly because Canaan is the son of Ham, but he's moving into Shem's territory. So the Rashi commentary is saying that God had already given the land of Canaan to the descendants of Shem. Um, Canaan is taking it from them. So when he gives it to Abraham, he's actually, in many ways, giving him what's really his already. He's reemphasizing, this is yours, which I think is kind of cool because there's some who kind of come out and they're like, well, God, you know, just took it from the Canaanites and gave it to the people of Israel. You know, the Canaanites are the rightful owners of that because they were there first. And uh, the Rashi commentary is basically saying, no, the very first human being, on, you know, left over on the planet at this point was delegated this land, and it was taken from him, and God restored that uh, inheritance by giving it back to Abraham. That was kind of helpful. Kind of cool. Because we get a lot of those comments about the uh, Palestinians and whatnot, because suppose, you know, they weren't there first anyway. Interesting thing that I read in chapter 13, jumping back, in just the, the little verse in 3, and it just talks about the journey, it's pretty, pretty generic, but the commentary was so interesting, and I had heard this before, but apparently the teachers of Musar, so like the ethics, it is from that verse that they derive the lesson of frugality because they point out that on the way to Egypt, when Abraham wasn't wealthy, there was a, a way that he stopped and everything was with tents, and, and it, was, it was clear that it wasn't like a wealthy journey. But then they point out that on the way back, when he was much more wealthy, it was the exact same description. Hmm. Therefore, even though he had amassed all this wealth, his journeying was still hmm. not of like very luxurious. It was it was living coach. below his means essentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can afford it, but I still fly coach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, cool. So that, that, that's a neat little lesson in frugality there. From, from uh, that it reminds me when I was a kid growing up, I read about um, a basketball player, uh, and he ended up towards the end of his life uh, career, not life career, life in basketball. Um, was making you know well up upwards of like ten million dollars a year like he was extremely wealthy, um, but they, he actually stood out because he bought a house you know that just fit the number of kids he had and whatever else and um, he was thinking about the long game you know his his desire was to save money so that he would have plenty of money afterwards. I mean there've been quite a few athletes that have actually gone bankrupt making a hundred million dollars in their lifetime. They spend it all. They turn forty and they can't play basketball anymore. They actually have no job. They have no money. And so like this guy was trying to like, set it up so that he would have a future by being living below his means then, you know, in preparation for after his career was over. 
Um, which I thought was kind of cool. But yeah, going back to your point, like that sense of being careful with our money. Um, and Judaism emphasizes that whole idea even beyond the wisdom of it, also the modesty that there is, um, they, they highlight that one should be careful about being too showy with one's wealth. Uh, they, they use the example of, of um, Hezekiah when he invites the Babylonians in, shows them all the stuff in the temple and how glorious and how great this is. And, um, and Isaiah reprimands him for this. And he's like, what have you done? And he's like, I was just there from a long way away. I'm just showing off. And then they, and Isaiah's like, those same people are going to come back here and they're going to take all this stuff. Um, and so that idea of Judaism takes that as a lesson for life, just saying like, like be careful. And they don't say that you should like, I mean, this, they're not, they're not ascetic. They're not saying like, you know, if you're wealthy, you should make sure you only wear brown and, and you know, used clothes or whatever. They're, they're, their point is that like, you just need to be careful, um, humble, and uh, and that when you when you do have wealth, that you um, the way that you present it is, uh, I guess, generally speaking, less than what you really have, uh, which is not a bad lesson to learn. Yes, sir. So this is a, a cool um, thing I noticed in seventeen. Mm -hmm. When Abraham was ninety nine years old. God appeared to Abram, which at this point doesn't seem to be a real big deal, but that's a really big deal. Right. I mean, but it just seems to be happening so often to this guy. Mm -hmm. we, now we're just reading passages. Like, ah, oh, that's no big deal. You appear to Abram. He does it all the time. You know? mm -hmm. The mailman comes, you know, God showed up. You know. God appeared to Abram and said to him, I am the almighty God. Come close to me and worship and be perfect. And when I see... God commanding somebody to be perfect, uh, I'm reminded of uh, the Master, Matthew mm -hmm. 5, 48, who says uh, that we're to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And then um, in uh, Deuteronomy, I think it's uh, 32, I can look it up, um, we get the same quote, and that's where Yeshua is getting it from, right, that we're to be blameless, mm -hmm. um, or perfect, everyone, it's tamin, it's the same thing that's used for the, the offering, right, it's how to be blameless. And this, this worry for... And for Jacob. Yeah. He's a wholesome man. Right. Same word. Tamim. Yeah. Uh, Ishtamim. Right. Um, Tamim. Tamim. Right. Um, but the, the, this word is mostly used of the offerings. You bring this animal, got to be blameless. Right. Because I'm, you know, constantly. Right. Uh, numbers just go over. And then also, um, hang on. What are the uh, clean and unclean? To me, man, to me, to me, okay, never mind. It's wrong Hebrew. So, but the interesting thing about this is not, not that this word is used so much in numbers about the offerings, as if Abram was going to be some type of offering or anything like that. But there's no other place where walking and blameless appear in the same verse huh. in the Torah, except this verse about Avram, or actually, yeah, it's still Avram. And what he said about Noah. In 6.9 he says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Here, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk with me and be blameless. Only two guys, only two times in the entire Torah. Every time you get these together, it's for the rest of the time, you got six times in the Psalms, and one time in Proverbs, and it talks about righteous men. 
It's really cool that you say that because um, the Rashi commentary actually plays off of that because if you look at the two passages, there's a difference. So Noah walked with God. Abram walked before God or was told to walk before God. So the, um, the, the commentary is to say he's contrasting their righteousness. Not that Noah wasn't a righteous man, but that like Avram takes it to another level because Noah walked with God in the sense that Noah, um, uh, I'm not saying we don't depend on God for a righteousness we do, but like he was particularly dependent on his relationship with God to keep him righteous. Like it was, I guess, a bigger battle for him. Yeah. Well, I, I Whereas Noah, Avram here, it says walk before me and be perfect is almost the idea that he, not that he was independent, but that he was, um, he was able to do that. Like he, he had it in him to walk righteously before God. Um, kind of like today, I mean, if you've ever experienced this, you go to a, you know, a Torah service and I would hope most of us are, you know, we're top shelf in those two hours. <laughs> when you get home, not so much. And it's like Noah, so Noah was like, when he's with God, you know, he's righteous, he's good. But Abraham was actually able to like take that righteousness with him, so to speak, um, and a little more um, not independent. But you get that idea. Mm. And I'm sorry, but you were going to say. No, no, I, I, I get it. Um, I see it more as. I mean, that, that verse about Noah. The very verse, next verse says he took him. Well, Enoch he walked with God. Oh, Enoch right. walked with God, right? So Noah's walking with God the same way Enoch did. Okay. Right. So more of a present tense or past tense he's he is right but i okay. see that the the abraham thing is more of a there's, there's a future. future thing i want you to walk you know before me or or will walk in this way that's the word right. i mean it's faith ah okay yeah that's cool it's also they mentioned the el shaddai that was the first time that word's that's right. That's, that's right. That's a new name that shows up again. That's, but that's a that's a second yeah. new name. But I I, I can't remember one which one it was. Portion. But it is it's actually that one that Hashem uses later on in Exodus to say right. that was the name He used to appear to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Nice. And then he uses a different name to appear right. to Hashem. Yeah, right. Anyway. Right. Right. It's kind of like Abraham does what he's supposed to do without God having to tell him what he's supposed to do. Where Noah has to. Kind of be told this is what you should. That's do. one way to look at it. Yeah, like you're walking with me in a relationship. You're already righteous, being ahead, doing what you're supposed to be doing. There we go. That works too. Um, I do like the future tense thing. God has like a path for him to be walking down. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, yeah, you were saying with the El Shaddai, um, traditionally. You want to uh, sing that one too? Yeah. <laughs> um, this one's actually one where the Hebrew is really weird, but there is a Hebrew meaning that seems to be, I don't know what El Shaddai means exactly, but it does seem to come from the same word um, in reference to like breast, but the idea of being like nourishment. So like God is the provider is another way of translating that. Um, which, uh, so it's like he, he acts as the provider before them, uh, for them. You also will see here, this is Adonai appeared to Avram. The word there um, is Yareh, um, Avram uh, was 99 years old. Viyare Adonai al Avram. Uh, that word will show up again. We're going to have a whole portion of that one, right? Uh, and we also have in well in the uh, in the story of Isaac. So the whole thing, you know, we talk about um, we talk about the uh, God will provide. Adonai Yare. It's the same thing. Like in the mount of the Lord, it will be seen. It's literally yeah. the translation. Um, so you kind of have that here. 
seeing the same word there. Um, previously, I think the same root was used in talking about Sarah, that she was beautiful to look at. It's interesting that, uh, as Alan and I were reading this this week, we came up upon that part just before they get to Egypt. Mm-hmm. And in, in this version it said, and Abraham realized for the first time or something like that, that his wife was beautiful. First. So he said to her, look, we're going to have a problem here. Could you just, you know, and I'm like, that's, that's, that's a different way of putting it. Yeah, another way of putting it that I like better than that one, because I saw that one too, and I was like, I don't know about that. Um, the other one that I saw from the Rashi commentary was saying something about um, that he was, uh, that it was like they had journeyed all this time, and it's like, and it's almost like, whoa, like you're still looking you still look good. amazing. Yeah. You know? She's like 60, 70. Right. Yeah, yeah you don't even sweat. The other, the, other version, the other version was they got to Egypt and they're all ugly people. Right. And he's like, wow, you really stand yeah. out look, now. all the women are bald. You got hair. You don't look like Nefertiti. She is traditionally counted as one of the four. Yeah, most yeah, most beautiful women on the world. Apparently, yes. I mean, she kept making kings fall all themselves for her, so that's pretty impressive. My wife does the same thing, actually. I know, I was going to say, how many can relate when you go to the DMV? That's right, yeah. It's like, whoa, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Number 47. Oh, are you with her? Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, that's definitely. Why, that's why I'm watching time. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the protector, it's a That's right. I'm definitely glad that my wife's not the flirtatious type, you know? It's like, you kind of, like, whew, okay, we're going to be okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. She won't get in Sarah trouble. Was the flirtatious type either. Well, then at the same time, yeah, I guess it could be, that's true. Good, true, that's true. So I guess you'd be armed then. I guess that's your, yeah. only, your only hope there. Well, Fight him off. 318 guys around him. I think he's okay. Or one very cool one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's all it takes. Eliezer, my God is strength, strong. Uh, or no, my God is my health. Eliezer. Um, yeah, so final comments, anything else? There was one mitzvah in this entire portion. Pretty important. Didn't we have one in the last one? And, or none in the last one? And then one in the, in Genesis? I mean, it's, we're really on, the, on the, the part of the Bible that's got really very few. you got to get into Exodus before right. you start getting some more. Right. right. But, but that's one of the things about the Bible where we learn a lot from the stories. Yeah. Right. It's not yeah. the commandments, it's yeah. the stories. It's not didactic. Well, it's, it's, um, what's that other word? Agotic. Agotic. Right. It's my son-in-law. Oh. Agotic, yeah. Yeah, so this is, and that, I think this is helpful because when you read, when you read the Torah, we get, as a deeper end, we get to the Exodus and Leviticus and all that stuff. Um, you know, it'll say things like, love your neighbor as yourself. And there's a few examples of what that looks like. There's a lot of other ones where you're like, well, how am I going to do that? And What's that look like? That's what we're reading now. Amen. When you read about Abraham, and you read about his sons, and you read about righteous men, um, even, even imperfect righteous men, yeah. um, you, you see that worked. That didn't work. I'm not going to lie about who my wife is. Lesson learned. On the other hand, I am going to be hospitable because that was, you know, uh, a heroic trait on the part of Abraham. So you get those, those things, and that helps flesh out, literally put flesh and bone on the commandment so you can see what it looks like to be lived. Um, and that's ultimately why Yeshua, why Yeshua was there, but it's ultimately one of the things that Yeshua brought to the table as being on earth 
why he, you know, he's living a life as a man. He didn't just come to die, he came to live. Mm-hmm. And to show us what it means to fulfill the Torah in every respect and to understand what that looks like on a day-to-day basis. So as he's making his teachings, very rarely is he repeating something that the Torah already said. Most of the time he's taking the Torah said and he's explaining it. This is what it really means. This is how you actually do that. Um, well, and it, I mean, to your point, Matthew 5, it's the last verse, 48th verse of the chapter, where he says, not, you are to be perfect as my heavenly father, is therefore. Right. Now that you've read this entire chapter, you are to be perfect as my heavenly father's, because I just showed you how to do that. Yeah, right. The, the elucidation, the illumination is, right. is all there already. Right, and then you get from John the idea that, um, you know, uh, there's almost like a, an excuse up until Yeshua, because, you know, no one's done it, right? So but now that he's here, you've kind of gotten the example it can be done to live a righteous life mm. completely. Mm. And there's this, mm. but he ultimately is the judge. But by, by, well, we get so many people that are named as blameless according to the Torah prior to his birth. Fair enough. But even even still, the point, though, is that maybe the people then didn't have a good example, but now that he's there, Agreed. there's no excuse. Um, and uh, so as we're reading throughout this, yeah, this is a good point. Be looking for the lessons to learn. One of the reasons I love the book of Genesis, one of my favorite parts about it, is that very component, because the whole thing is like a treasure hunt. Throughout the whole time is reading, um, you're digging, you're, you're tearing away, you're looking for what is God trying to tell me here, and why did he say it that way, and why is that Hebrew word spelled wrong, and you know, all these different types of cool things. Yes, sir. One of the other little lessons that I had seen from the first time this year is that lesson or concept in Judaism about keeping a mitzvah with alacrity, doing oh, it the right, right way. And I hadn't noticed until this year where it's literally like mid-sentence, right after Hashem says, hey, by the way, don't call her Sarai, it's Sarah. Abraham, like, his next sentence that comes out of his mouth is Sarah. He immediately <laughs> cool. switches. Like, that's there's cool. no in-between. Cool. So that's kind of cool. And I noticed this year at the end of chapter 17, it says that he circumcised. He circumcises everyone in that day. Like, I would have thought it would have been kind of like, okay, so we're going to have a rotational <laughs> first system. Five, right. Today, yeah. tomorrow. They're... Yeah. It's like, and, and then on top of that, as we learned from the story of Shechem, it's a little dangerous to have everybody circumcised on the same day. So it's almost like, we're going to rotate this one. You guys are day one. Uh, day four, your your numbers come soon. Um, but he, 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 right, to your point, he's so desirous to obey God, he does it immediately with everybody at once. I, quite frankly, you know, guy number two was really obedient. <laughs> I, I just can't imagine. I mean, I've, I've been to several circumcisions now, and there's a lot of screaming going. Mm-hmm. With grown men, I bet there's even more screaming. <laughs> guy number two. Next! <laughs> <laughs> That'd be tough. That'd that be would tough. be very tough. What did they do to you? You're kidding. <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> what, is, like, what does that word mean? Oh. 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 What? <laughs> what are you do with that big knife? But you know the amazing thing is that um, Abraham, <laughs> Abraham at this point is such a sure, righteous sure. man and such a great leader. He has no he has no pushback. Right. None of yeah. these guys tell him, not me, you're not. That's right. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's pretty exactly cool. Right. 314 of the 318 were circumcised. Four guys ran away. There was a revolution in the house. Abraham was victorious. Right. That's right. But I think it's really impressive to me that people who were not related to him. I mean, Ishmael's 13. He's his son. Okay, fine. But the other men. Wait, I'm going to get this straight. 
God spoke to you and told you to do what? To cut what? Sure, I'm gonna do that. Yeah. No, instead they take him at his word and they go. There's no, there's no fight. And if it was Eliezer alone, he got circumcised 317 more times. <laughs> no, it was most impressive to me is just that like Abraham inspired that. Yeah. I think that's that's in a good lesson to learn right there. Like as a leader, how can you be not only setting such a good example, but be humble, gracious, um, but but de- de- decisive leader mm-hmm. that you inspire people to follow you without question, even when what you're asking them to do seems outrageous or painful. They will move halfway across the world with no one we know. Sure, I'll do that. You get the same thing with David's mighty men. They're, yeah, they know, follow him without question. Without question. And mm-hmm. Obedience begets obedience. Right. Amen. And as you see someone truly following God, and you, and you see the difference it makes in their life, it makes you want to be like that. That's right. why fathers can have such an amazing impact upon their Absolutely. sons. Right. Right. It starts us. God spoke to my father, and he did exactly what he told me to do. And look right. at you. Yeah. Then you get to pass that on. It's pretty cool. All righty. Um, Dad, if you would close this in prayer. Our Father, our King, we thank you for your mercy and for your grace that are heaven and the stories of the men and women that we're reading about. We thank you for them. We thank you for our Father again. We thank you for the example that you gave us in him. We thank you that you love us enough to tell us about him. Father, we pray that you might uh, bless us this Shabbat and that you might prepare the week for us that is coming. We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen.